You are now listening to Sanity in the Movies. And I don't know, Ben, I'm afraid people are going to think we're sellouts. We're just going the route of like making the most commercial podcast we possibly can, something that obviously everyone's going to listen to, but is our heart really in it? Oh, yeah. It's so, it's so in it. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We love foreign art films from the 60s. Oh, boy. But there's one thing that we love. One thing that gets our blood moving. <laughs> one thing that gets our blood moving. Yeah. Yes. La Aventura, Antonioni, oh, Fellini. Man. I actually do like Fellini a decent amount, although he can be perverse. I do not like Antonioni or La Aventura. A movie about rich, decadent people who go to an island and one of their members disappears, which sounds like a pretty cool setup for a movie, I guess. But yeah, then there's like another two hours of the movie or something like that, and they're just like, huh, a friend disappeared. Well, we should have sex. Am I remembering this correctly? I mean, more or less. They kind of go looking for her and then... Eh, I don't know. It was terrible. Yeah. yeah, It was was awful. No, it's one of those movies that does not want to have a plot. Jean-Luc Godard, the man we're actually talking about today, said, A movie should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's exciting. (laughs) Well, Ben... I just made you sit through some of Breathless, the famous Ooh. Godard film, and a little you, bit of Weekend. You did, you did. Just to give you the Godard flavor. Jean-Luc Godard, a titan of the cinema. I mean, okay, let me backtrack and do a little table setting here. You are listening to Sanity at the Movies. I am Nathan. That is Ben. Jake is on vacation this week, but he would be here. He's not. This isn't one of those 2001-type situations where, where Jake... <laughs> would not be here. Would not be here either way. <clears throat> That's right. No, no, no. He'd be here. But uh, Jake, you have Jake to thank for this episode. He said, why don't you guys do something about Jean-Luc Godard? I don't know if Jake's ever seen any Jean-Luc Godard, <laughs> but he just linked to an article that Jean-Luc Godard, that giant of cinema, the premier filmmaker of the French New Wave in the 1960s, very influential filmmaker, had died at, I believe, age 91 or 92. I, it was news to me that he was still alive. Because everybody else from his generation, this is the generation of Akira Kurosawa and Federico Fellini, all these guys that are famous for putting the stamp of foreign film on these great shores of America, at least. Man. When art house cinema kind of became a thing in the 50s and 60s, these were the guys. And very influential. Godard, the most influential of them all. And yet, not a single one of his movies is hardly watchable, I would say. Well, we'll talk about him. I mean, you don't have Quentin Tarantino without Godard. You don't have modern documentary filmmaking without Hmm. Godard. You don't have the whole aesthetic of indie film, of anything that's not studio-bound, of of anything Hmm. that's handheld, anything that's caught in the moment, anything that's improvised. Anything that's spontaneous. You don't have Guy, Ben's old pal Guy Ritchie. Certainly you don't have without Godard. You don't have fancy YouTube videos with jump cuts and huh. going between different 
little titles and hmm. clips and stuff like that without Godard. I mean, he is the guy who said, hey, we can do all kinds of stuff with this cinema thing. Uh-huh. doesn't have to be in the Hollywood studio style or in the boring old, as he saw it, French style at the time. We can just make cinema a personal expression of the filmmaker, uh-huh. and it can be done quickly and Im- improvisatorily, and it can be a metatextual conversation between me, the filmmaker, and other filmmakers. I think he's the one who said, because he's famous for his little sayings, he said, the only way to criticize a film is to make another film. So all his films are criticisms of of other films or in dialogue with other films. If people have seen or remember or are aware of the phenomena that was Pulp Fiction in 1994 when that film came out, almost 30 years ago now, that's very Godardian. The idea that when John Travolta sh- accidentally shoots the guy's head off, we as an audience aren't supposed to just be horrified like we've seen a terrible act of violence. We're supposed to laugh because we understand on some kind of a metatextual level that these things don't usually happen in movies. And it's silly and provocative that someone is making this happen in a movie. And we're all sitting in a movie, and so we can all have kind of a laugh. And Tarantino, if anybody's seen any of his movies, is doing that kind of thing constantly. His movies are in dialogue with you as a viewer and in dialogue with other movies. And he uses a lot of provocative violence and stuff. That's right. I mean, I would say Reservoir Dogs feels very much like Antonioni in the sense that La La Aventura, which, because it's it's like torturing you. It's just like, Here's horrible scenes of violence that go on and on, and your hero's been shot in the belly, and he's kind of dying, but he's kind of not, and he's still talking. He's still alive for like another hour and a half, and what's going to happen, and everything's horrible, and the world sucks, and here, you just get to watch it all. Because you're supposed to enjoy it on the level of, we see all these movies where people get shot, and they just fall over and die, but what if a movie followed a guy for the next hour as he was dying and made us put up with all the little indignities of that. So that's like something that you don't see. So we're kind of breaking with convention. We're, mm-hmm. we're in dialogue with other movies, with the crime genre, mm-hmm. with the uh, genre itself, with the audience itself. <laughs> we're doing this whole kind of thing. And uh, Jean-Luc Godard, a- along with people like Antonioni and people from that era, is the father of this kind of filmmaking as subjective filmmaking as a personal statement as and filmmaking as in dialogue with the culture <laughs> and with other art. I don't want to go too far, but if you're like why should I be listening to this episode to understand the world that you live in, to understand Marvel movies even. The whole thing we always talk about ritual divorced from meaning, that sort of thing. I think really begins with a little movie called Breathless, which Ben just had the misfortune of sitting through several scenes. I did. From. It's kind of cool. Kinda, yeah. Kind of boring. <laughs> kind of drains the life force out of you. Kind of cool, kind of boring, kind of drains the life force out of you would be a good way to <laughs> summarize the entire <laughs> French New Wave. Although there are good movies that come out of it, like The 400 Blows by Truffaut and mm-hmm. some things like that. But if you want to understand, like, where did movies, when did art and when did movies as kind of the premier art form of the 20th century decide to just become subjective and stop trying to have any meaning besides as a reflection of itself and of other movies? 
Godard is kind of the guy that is responsible for a lot of that, huh. or at least the premier person from that school. So let's talk a little bit about post-war France, huh, Ben? Oh, Nathan, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> 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 They've got, what do you call those things? They've got their accordions, their stripy shirts, their cigarettes, their little mustaches. Yeah. The French. What else is there to know? Baguettes. Baguettes, yes. Maurice, the baguettes. They've got, what else do they have? They've got the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Lots of good stuff over there. Great country. Fries and toast. They've have French varieties of those. Yeah, lots um, of cool things. Yeah, lots of cool things. So I think all this stuff and a lot of the world that we live in today comes out of two movements that both happened in France. One is existentialism, which probably everybody knows about. The other is structuralism, which comes out of something that I always enjoy talking about, which is semiotics. Semiotics being the study of signs and symbols, first developed by the Swiss linguist Ferdinand de Saussure in the late 1800s. And Saussure was this guy, he was a linguist, so he studied language, and he began to ask questions about how language works, how a word and a thing go together. So you you have like the sound image of cat, cat, the word cat. How does that go along with, how is it associated with the feline thing that we all know and love and is there anything uniquely catty about the word cat or is it just an accident of history that for english speakers those particular phonetic pronunciations when lumped together in that way mm -hmm. became associated with the idea of felineness of catness and so Saussure talked about that he had the signifier, which is the word C-A-T, and the, the thing that's being signified, the signified, which is cats, the idea of cats. And so semiotics gets at the idea that words don't have inherent meaning. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's not that there's anything that's inherently catty about the word cat. It's just that we happen to associate it with the thing that we know as a cat. And so words really only have meaning in relation to... <sighs> other words and ideas only really have meaning in relation to other ideas which is of course a pretty godless philosophy it's it's ultimately nihilistic because what you're saying is that there's really i mean if, when, when you get when you go too far down this road what you begin to say is there's not really even such a thing as a cat because the only way that we can even have an idea of a cat is as a thing that is not a dog, that is not a snake. You know, ideas, concepts, they only exist in relation to each other. There's nothing, there's not like actually the thing, the thing that God created. Or at least if there is, we have no way of knowing that hmm. based on our limited ability to reason and to understand the world around this. So Ferdinand de Saussure hmm. only wanted to talk about this through the lens of language but other people started to apply the same kind of thinking to other fields. So you had Claude Levi-Strauss, who applied it to anthropology. Family only has meaning, and a person in a family only has meaning in relation to other people, in relation to other families. You can see how kind of the same idea filters into that. And then Jacques Lacan did the same thing with kind of Freudian psychoanalysis. And then you have names people might be a little bit more familiar with, like Foucault and Derrida. 
and all these cigarette smoking French intellectuals that would have been around in the Parisian cafes of the 1960s, Roland Barthes, who applied it to literature. We're going to break mm -hmm. the text, as he would have called it, into its component pieces and examine all the pieces in relationship to each other. And actually, the reason, if you can tell, I'm interested in this is because it can be pretty helpful. I mean, really, it's a lot yeah. of what we do. Like, we just recorded an episode on The Godfather, and a lot of the way that you criticize The Godfather is by breaking it into its component pieces and then comparing them to other component pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, The Godfather is an American movie. How does it compare to other American movies? It's a 1970s movie. How does it? It's a gangster movie. It belongs to the genre mm -hmm. of... So you have all these different structures, mm -hmm. if you will, Ben, that it's part of. You can do much closer examination, some of it very helpful, about the iconography of something like mm -hmm. The Godfather. I mean, an example from The Godfather would be like, there's a lot of dudes in that movie who wear wife beaters, sleeveless mesh undershirts. And w what is the cultural signification mm -hmm. of that type of shirt when you look at it in a movie? When, you, when a guy shows up in that shirt with suspenders on, probably... What do you think of? And it turns out it has all kinds of mm -hmm. yeah. associations. I don't, I don't know. What do you think of? You think of first generation uh, immigrants and people who beat their wives. Right. And, yeah. People who beat their wives. Guys who don't have, who, who have anger issues. Right. Guys with anger injuries, a certain kind of machismo. Right. Yep. Uh, you picture a guy beating his wife with his fists or with his belt or something. So much so that we've named, culturally, we've named that shirt. Like if I go on Amazon and I actually do happen to wear those kinds of shirts it, as undershirts. So if I want to find those shirts, I type in wife beater shirts of all things. Mm -hmm. And it pulls up those shirts and I don't give it a second thought. I'm not like, you know what? I'm going to beat my wife. So mm -hmm. I need these shirts because she she burned the roast. No, it's just like that's kind of shirt that I find comfortable to wear under my button downs that I usually wear. So hmm. it's interesting. A shirt has all these connotations culturally that are associated with it. If you're drawing a cartoon and your job is to quickly conjure up in one image, one little you know New Yorker cartoon, this guy's an, a domestic abuser, you draw him in that shirt. I mean, that's just the quickest way to make people understand without even thinking about it, who this guy is is and so the fact that the godfather has a bunch of guys sitting around smoking cigarettes in those kinds of shirts there's meaning and th and then you can really get into the weeds and you can say well what meaning did people from 1972 watching the movie derive from that and then you can really get into the weeds and say what meaning did people in 1971 making the movie want to put into that and then you can really get into the weeds and say now it's 2022 what how has that changed and all of that can be interesting. We both kind of have a love-hate relationship with the critic Walter Shaw, who's very much a structuralist mm -hmm. or post-structuralist. Yep. And he's always doing some things like this. Some of it is really helpful and interesting. Some of it is just madness. <laughs> you can see how this kind of thing can be useful. You can see how this kind of thing can just drive you mad. And you have to understand structuralism as happening at the same time as all the, the, the literary movement and the sort of French philosophical movement that was existentialism. So Sartre and Camus and people like that are writing at the same time in the 50s and the 60s. So existentialism just says life is absurd and you have to find your own meaning. And then you combine that with structuralism, which says, let's break everything down to its component parts and study those parts in relation to each other. And what you end up with is, as I've said, a kind of nihilism where you just keep breaking things down and breaking things down. And you say, 
well, what Ben thinks about a wife beater shirt is not the same as what Nathan thinks about a wife beater shirt. So how do we even find meaning within all these different competing cultural signifiers and things like that? I mean, you could think about biblical typology as a species of structuralism. You know, the idea we're just going to take a component from the Bible and we're going to compare it across all of the scriptures. So the idea of a serpent, we're going to look at all the scriptures and what they have to say about a serpent and what a serpent means and how it reoccurs. And that can be a very helpful thing to do. But then if you start getting into the weeds with that sort of thing and saying, well, what did a serpent mean to them? And then what does it mean to me? And how's the meaning of serpent changed? And Ben's grandmother was killed by a serpent, whereas Nathan's dad sold snakes. So we both have different ideas of serpentness. <laughs> and so actually, there's no one meaning of serpentness that we can find. Nothing means anything, which sounds stupid, but it is where these guys get. And Roland Barthes, the premier literary semiotician, got there with the famous essay called The Death of the Author, where he was just like, what the author means, the signal that the author's putting out and the signal that you're receiving are not the same. J.K. Rowling writes something, she means one thing, you read it, you imagine something else, it means something else to you. And so who cares about the author? Who cares about meaning? Nothing means anything. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is a really useful tool for Marxists because Marxists want to tear everything down. They want to prove that all the systems are bad and that all the things that come out of white capitalism are bad. They want to use the tools that came out of structuralism, which are post-structuralism and deconstruction <laughs> and things like that, to just sort of tear everything down and tear everything down and tear everything down, except for in select places where they can use the same tools to say, let's compare the different components of oppression across eras and see how everything reduces to oppression. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons that these movies are so, or that these movements like existentialism and structuralism are so successful is because they haven't just stayed in the realm of ideas. They've been uh, largely propagated through the arts and largely propagated through sex. Mm-hmm. And we think of them as sexy. I think of them as sexy. I picture when I, <laughs> when I talk about any of these ideas, I picture like a a French guy in a black turtleneck smoking a cigarette with like a pretty girl with a pixie haircut at a cafe in black and white. Um, it's the kind of thing that's parodied in movies from the 50s and 60s. Anytime they go to Paris, you'll, you'll see this kind of mm-hmm. world of art and decadence and stuff. There's a movie called, I forget what it's called. It's got Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. And Fred Astaire has to rescue Audrey Hepburn from falling into this world of decadent French <laughs> people who really, really just want to have sex with her, but they, she thinks that their ideas are so profound. And uh, so that's old Hollywood kind of gnashing its teeth at all these new movements and things. <laughs> but anyway, all of this blossomed into a lot of French art and French cinema. And Jean-Luc Godard was the guy that took all these things and ran with them and made them big in the cinema. He was born in 1930 in Paris to an extravagantly wealthy, as the New York Times obit that I read today said, Protestant family. His dad was a physician. His mom was the daughter of a banker. And so he just had money, as so many of these Hmm. famous starving artists did. He just had money and time to spare. Uh, And he made friends with a, a lot of other people who cinema files will know, Francois Truffaut and 
Andre Bazin and Eric Rahmer and all these French guys who were bored with current film and were breathing the air of all these ideas that I've just gone through. And they decided we should remake cinema in a revolutionary kind of a way. And so that's exactly what they did. They founded a magazine. It's called Cachures de Cinema or something like that. And a lot of the theory that is in your brain today comes from this magazine. Auteur theory, things like that come out of this. So the fact, the idea that you think of the director as, as, as the author of the work, you wouldn't have thought that necessarily in the 1930s or 1940s, but these new critics from this era premiered this idea and they wanted to look at a director. So they championed people like Alfred Hitchcock and people whose you could pull out all the themes and do a structuralist reading, basically, you know. What are all the things that we can look at that make a Hitchcock film? And how are they in dialogue with other films? And all this, this kind of thing. So Godard and his friends are kind of dilettantes. They're kind of dilettantes with money. They decide that they're going to make films. And so they get a little bit of funding. And they make these, these movies that are in black and white, that are personal, that are quickly shot, that are largely improvised, that are trying to take old ideas like from Humphrey Bogart movies and the things that they liked and thought were sexy and cool, old, old gangster movies, Jimmy Cagney stuff, trying to take, take those ideas and be in dialogue with them, but also use them, use the materials of cinema to make a personal statement, which sounds kind of cool, I guess. But what it comes down to is what Ben had to sit through today, which is Breathless was the big one that Godard, his first film in 1960. And I don't know, how would you describe what you had to endure. <clears throat> oh. Maybe I shouldn't load it like that. There is I something compelling about it. I, I don't <sighs> Well, it's not, it's not interested in a, I mean, it has a plot kind of, but it's not, it's just interested in the moment by moment, the sense of this decadent loser who's kind of cool mm -hmm. Making all these decisions. Uh, I'm gonna leave this girl. Gonna steal this car. Gonna kill this cop. Gonna sleep with another girl. He's just like, just kind of living moment to moment, commenting wryly on the world, right? And just kind of existing. Like the movie has all this jazz music, and the, your hero has a fedora on, and just has this sense of like, well, I, I'm living in this world of. It's like I'm the hero of my own story yeah. in in a certain sense. I'm but I'm not a hero of any kind. I'm just a just a decadent guy who does what he wants and that's all the enlightenment that there is, I guess. What matters is moment to moment seeing the world in my kind of ironic ugly way, right, which is also kind of cool because a movie can make things like that cool. Right. And I, as a character, kind of know that I'm in a movie. There's places where he turns to the camera mm, and, and talks. makes a little wry little comment to it. Mm -hmm. I know that I don't really exist as a literal human being, but that I'm kind of a, a reaction or a reflection of, mm -hmm. of what the author of the movie must think about Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Cagney and how he sees himself as a man and what he wants to be. So it's very influential in terms of style. It's handheld. It's what we would think of as a verite, I suppose, these days. Mm -hmm. just a documentary filmmaking style really comes out of this movie in particular. Just black and white, shaky cam. Like, they couldn't afford to have cranes and stuff to move their camera. So it's just all, all very 
on the ground, captured in real locations, not studio bound, not overly lit. <clears throat> I mean, it's just like what you could get on the day. And then the jump mm-hmm. cut, the movie's very famous for just piecing its footage together quickly in a, in a way that actually still feels pretty fresh and modern, I would say. Like, yeah. you, you have to keep up with it. Um, it's a little bit like a Guy Ritchie movie, I guess, or I don't he know. He sees what... a cop coming. You see his hand reaching in the glove compartment. You see him spin the barrel of a gun. Suddenly, you hear the sound of a shot, and the cop is falling over in the woods. You see his car driving away. You know, you're right. not getting the, the, in, the material in between that that tells you the story. Well, he's waiting for the cop. He's pulling out the gun. He's, you're just getting these little shots. Right. So you watch a commercial today, and someone's like, I'm hungry. And then you cut to a wrapper being ripped off of a Snickers bar and then the Snickers bar going into his mouth and then little neurons in his tongue dancing. And then like, it's, it's just a a series of cuts, right? It's not, you don't need all the in-between stuff. You don't need to actually sit there in a, in a a wide shot and see a guy open a Snickers bar, put it into his mouth, chew, say, "Mm, that's good. No, you can just stitch together a bunch of stuff to quickly tell that story. And that all comes directly, more or less, out of Breathless and other things too. But Breathless was like the big one that that everybody saw and was like, "This is cool. We can do more of this." So, if you, so people know the works of like Danny Boyle or any of the sort of '90s avant-garde people. Mm-hmm. Tarantino certainly. The great Danny Boyle. The great Danny Boyle. It all. And, and anytime you've ever seen a movie and been like, "Oh, this is a movie. Like this, 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 this has." energy and propulsion and mm-hmm. music and image put together in a way to not make me forget I'm watching a movie, but remind me that I'm watching a movie. That comes pretty directly out of Godard. So that's stylistically what we have to thank the movie for. But more generally, it does have that idea of the cool existential loner who just beds women and eventually he's going to die, but who cares? Bonnie and Clyde, the movie Bonnie and Clyde certainly came out of this about nine years later. Uh, Some of the cachet of The Godfather, even though it's a very classically filmed, comes out of this. Things like The French Connection, all the sort of 70s stuff is coming out of the French new wave. And then all the cinema that you get today down to commercial filmmaking, YouTube videos, things like that comes out of it too. And it all comes from this film, Breathless. I have a quote here from the critic Richard Brody, which again appeared in this New York Times obit. After Breathless, anything artistic appeared possible in the cinema. The film moved at the speed of the mind and seemed unlike anything that preceded it, a living recording of one person thinking in real time. It was also a great success, a watershed phenomena. More than any other event of its time, Breathless inspired other directors to make films in a new way and sparked young people's desire to make films. It instantly launched cinema as the primary art form of a new generation. So really, arguably, you don't get Spielberg or Lucas or any of the guys that we talk about without the influence of, hey, this is a young guy doing something different and fun and cool, and I could do this too, and you don't have to have this studio giving you billions of dollars. You can just figure out a way to shoot it on location and do all this stuff. All you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun, Mr. Godard famously said. Another one of his aphorisms that I doubt he, well, I know he didn't actually keep to it, but in any case, he kept making movies. There's a lot of other famous ones. Masculine Feminine is another one. It has the famous quote, um, 
We are all the children of Marx and Coca-Cola. Never heard that. Yes, just one of those things that was popular in the 60s as kind of a catchphrase. Oh, what else? Weekend, I made Ben sit through Weekend, which is about nine years later after Breath. How would you describe that one? Oh, that's just aggressive and screechy and full of full of things that are just clearly political screeds, scenes that, are, that, that only exist to comment on capitalism and be... Yeah, be it's really, like, be really annoying. You suddenly cut without context to a car. It's been crashed. There's a corpse in the car. Then we cut to pe- peasants lined up against a wall, looking at the car, sort of indifferently. Then we cut to a peasant who's kind of smiling while he smokes a cigarette. What does it mean? Then we cut to the girlfriend of the man who was killed, and she's screeching about how it was all the fault of the peasant who ran into the car with the tractor yeah yeah it's it's just it's really irritating yeah then we have a vignette where a guy's dressed in colonial garb standing in a field screaming about capitalism or something like that so it's just if you've ever been to a museum of modern art and had to go through one of those video exhibitions where it's just like random i remember i was in one Mm -hmm. one time it's like You go into a dark room and there's TVs and one TV has like frying meat and the other one TV has like migrant workers and the other TV has probably a naked woman dancing or something. And you're supposed to put all these images together. And I mean, yeah, it's made to, it's interesting. It's, it's, it feels, it all feels very destructive. All of it. Yeah. Even as soon as you see Breathless, you realize that, oh, are you? Five minutes of Breathless, whatever we actually watched. Mm-hmm. No, hold on. As soon as you see the five minutes of the weekend, you realize Breathless 2, not that you didn't already know it, is just destruction. Just nihilism. It's just nihilism. There's no meaning in these relationships, really. There's no, there's nothing to preserve about the world. There's nothing to hold on to. There's not a moral center. If there is, well, what gave anyone the right to hold to it? Yeah. I didn't vote for you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. All you all you have is just like the fun of the fun of showing people that their world is a big piece of trash full of oppression. Like I said, I I wanted to go to go to perhaps indulgent pains at the beginning to show that I had some sympathy for some of these movements for structuralism in particular because I think, A, that there are a few good things that came out of it, but B, so much of it is is not that someone actually enjoys a movie like this while they're watching it. They just enjoy being part of the club that says they enjoy it. It's like Ulysses by Joyce or it's one of those things. It's kind of impenetrable. It's not really fun. It's not really informative. But mm-hmm. if you can kind of say that you got it and feel like you got it and pontificate about how you got it, then you can feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. And the more you can understand the more things like that, then the more good about yourself you can feel. And I've met young people. Jake was at a summer camp doing like a, a pastor thing. Yeah. And he met, a, he met a young man who, you know, like a 14-year-old, I think, 13, 14-year-old young man who was in, into Godard films. And I just want to shake somebody like that and say, I know you think you're deep and you're getting something out of this, but A... You didn't go watch La Aventura, actually. Like, you didn't find the boring one. You found the one that had all the sex and violence, which tells me a little something about your priorities. B, it's not fun. It's, it, it, it has no meaning. It doesn't have a story. There's no suspense. There's, there's nothing happening. It's just a series of vignettes. Some of them can be 
energetically filmed. Some of the movies can be better than others. Breathless is better than Weekend. But when you get down to it, it's just deconstructing. It's not telling a story mm-hmm. about people. There's, there's nothing to latch on to. There's nothing to, to, there's not characters to love or to hate. There's not humanity to learn about. It's not actually doing anything that stories have traditionally done. It's just kind of existing in dialogue to other stories to give you a little intellectual kick. Then it, well, what it, what it wants you to believe in is, is systems of oppression, I guess. Yeah. It is just like, well, what you should believe in is that you, you should be, I don't know. Just that everything's absurd. Yeah. That there's people in power taking advantage one way or another. That nothing's too harsh in terms of standing up to those people. That whatever connections you do form with someone are going to be destroyed anyway. So that's that's a little sad, but on the other hand, what are you going to do? Right. Find a little beauty in the moment when you can. Roger Ebert kind of repented of Godard. He loved him in the 60s when everything was really? hitting. And then a lot of his, and I, he was still admiring in some of his reviews, but I liked his review of Weekend that he wrote later. Huh. Here's a quote from it. There was a barnyard scene in Weekend where the camera rotated in a circle once, twice, and then rotated back the other way just a little to show that it knew and you knew that it was rotating. How cool. And a tracking shot of an unbelievably long traffic jam, which remains one of the great shots, but great about what? I wrote in my original view of that film, quote, at some point we realized that the subject of the shot is not the traffic jam, but the fact that the shot is so extended. Politics is a traveling shot, Godard told us a few years ago, and now we know what he meant. So that's what young Ebert wrote. And then old Ebert writes, "Uh uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> so I like him kind of making fun of his young self for uh-huh. finding so much depth and meaning. Uh-huh. There's another review where he's like, I wanted to pretend like there was so much intellectual meaning, but what I actually responded to in these films was that there was these young men smoking cigarettes and then betting all these beautiful women. And I just thought that lifestyle seemed really appealing when I was a young man. And so that's what I liked. It wasn't any of the ideas about we are the children of marxism and coca-cola or kind of makes you think about the james bond movies huh yeah a little bit (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah the fun of james bond is watching the world burn from the perspective of a guy who's really good at burning things yeah i guess you could you could you could cast uh godard as james bond movies for people who style themselves Uh as intellectuals popcorn eating people still want a little bit of a plot with their nihilism and it's something to feel about the characters with their nihilism but uh <laughs> godard's like who needs plot who needs feeling let's just have random in- images and vignettes that barely make sense in and of themselves and indeed in the 70s godard went so far up his own rectum i guess i can say that he shot these weird esoteric movies that were just collections of images that were supposed to be criticizing capitalism but they didn't make any money and nobody cared and he fell out of fashion because there was just nothing to them i mean it was just like watching an exhibition at an art gallery it was just like what is this and one of his final films in 2014 got pretty well lambasted and godard actually released the film on youtube fast forwarded like, like he released, re- released a version where it was moving really fast and you could watch it all in about four minutes. Weird. And who knows? I mean, he didn't like to give interviews and stuff. So who knows why he did that? But it was kind of a ha-ha. My movie's so meaningless that gotcha. you can watch it on fast forward. Gotcha, suckers. 
So he, he's kind of the James Joyce, Ulysses, Virginia Woolf, all, huh. these, all these modernists that just want to break things down and defy any kind of conventional narrative. And, and they just keep moving in that direction until their work just becomes a jumble of meaninglessness that only really important critics and scholars who've given themselves to, to a, a lifetime of it can decipher. It's like a puzzle for academic star and the rest of us are just left out in the cold that's eventually where godard went although he was pretty far already there i'd say from the beginning his death was of assisted suicide his assistant said he could not live like you and me and so he decided with a great lucidity as he had all his life to say now it's enough mr godard wanted to die with dignity and that was exactly what he did so it's just a very godardian end for the most Godardian of people, Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> <laughs> Not cool. Not cool. Yeah, I'm looking at this Guardian article about how Godard shattered cinema. It's all these different directors paying tribute. Mm-hmm. And their tributes suck. Frankly. Yeah. A feast of challenges that were pure anarchic bliss. Okay. Michael A. Mike Lee, however you pronounce your name. His movies feel... Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's Martin Scorsese. Yeah, for whatever reason, Scorsese thinks his movies feel more necessary and alive than ever. Yeah, you had the impression that he was actually taking apart his own movie and rebuilding it before your eyes. You never knew what to expect from moment to moment. Even from frame to frame, that's how deep his engagement with the cinema went. So, the fact that he can tear things apart Mm -hmm. makes him great, I guess. Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah. It's hard to criticize a provocateur from a distance of years because you're not sure or you don't have as much of a frame for what he was trying to provoke. It's hard to criticize a deconstructionist 40 years, 50 years down the road because you don't know, you're not as aware, you don't live under the same systems that he wanted to dismantle. So if his films are in dialogue with something, maybe they're just not in dialogue with us and maybe they had more inherent meeting at the time and maybe the things that they wanted to dismantle, some of them deserve to be dismantled. Yeah. Well, I've watched a few minutes of two Godard movies and I don't know. I would say we gave a pretty good reading (laughs) of his movies as deconstructing and not not leaving anything to be enjoyed or learned, except... In terms of style and how you can how you can construct film narratives, clearly he did a lot to influence filmmakers, and the tools he came up with are pretty cool. Yeah, if you want to watch, you got to be careful because his movies are all going to have sexual content. But if you want to watch five minutes of Breathless just to get the idea, that's all you need, and you'll see if you're watching it with your eyes open, you'll see what's interesting and energetic and provocative about it although it is one of those things where so much of what it did has been so thoroughly subsumed into mm-hmm. the language of cinema and the way that we the way that coke commercials like i said are shot i mean just handheld camera work basic jump cuts to tell a story things like that that it might be a little hard to put yourself in the mindset of really seeing how revolutionary and what a breath of fresh air this all was but it was and it's kind of cool. Yeah. But man, you don't have to waste a single second of your life on Godard movies. If you're a young cinephile, if you're actually interested in this stuff, like they're not fun. They're not interesting. They're not exciting. They're not interestingly provocative. They 
they capture your self-pity and despair and your sense that being clever and cool is actually what keeps a person on top and gives their life meaning. They capture it in the same way that the anime Cowboy Bebop used to capture it for me. Right, which is such a Godard riff. I mean, the, the oh, yeah. cigarette dangling in the lips. We just saw it. You saw some stuff yeah. from Breathless. Yeah, yeah. It's just the the guy with the cigarette dangling. I was thinking of Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, yeah. Cowboy Bebop actually does have a plot. But surprise, surprise, it's also basically a nihilistic riff on how the life is meaningless. Right. There is something, uh, structurally and semiotically speaking, there is something about a nihilistic story that has a complete story that sort of is self-defiant. That was the most ridiculous way to say that. But what I'm trying to say is when you have a complete story, there's something not nihilistic about that inherently. Like when you're saying, my story does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So Cowboy Bebop or the Coen brothers or all kinds of people who are just as nihilistic as Godard, but then they tell stories. I have a little bit more respect for them because they can't quite be as nihilistic as they want to Mm -hmm. because just by imposing a story on the sequence of events, they're saying, well, there must be some meaning. There must be some through line. There must be some God of this universe. Whereas somebody like Godard really is trying to achieve a cinema of meaninglessness. He really is trying to strip away story, strip away character, strip away anything but a series of poses and vignettes. And I'm not arguing in favor of any of the other things, but I am saying there is something even more decadent and something even more boring and something even more nihilistic about what somebody like a Godard is doing. And that's why I wouldn't recommend any of his films. While I might recommend films from people who have been influenced Influenced by by him. him. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a way to make a good movie about how absurd a fallen, broken world is. There's a way to, to tell that story. But this movie is just, these movies are celebrating it, yeah, I would say. I think you're right. And they're very bitter and angry about people who make money and the capitalist systems and all this kind of stuff, and which is just so boring coming from rich white guys, which is where <laughs> all this woke stuff always comes from. Godard was a jerk to his parents. He took their money. His mom got him a job somewhere editing film or something like that and he stole money from that made her look like a fool they had a falling out he didn't even go to her funeral but he was certainly happy to live off of his mother and father's money while making all these movies about stupid old people with their money and their class and their and there's just something very ugly about that to me so i'd say if you're interested in the period if you're interested in the art films that influenced martin scorsese and steven spielberg and George Lucas and all these guys. You can watch Akira Kurosawa, we've talked about before. You can watch some early Fellini like La Strada. You can watch, there are good foreign films that got popular in the 50s and 60s, but Godard is really a huge, huge, huge waste of your time. And I think it matters that he died by assisted suicide. He's defiant, God-hating nihilist all the way to the end. Yep. I think it's good to know about know who Godard is. I think it's good to know what Breathless did did and what it sort of bequeathed to the cinema. But you're not beholden to watch all his movies just because he did one thing that was pretty influential. Yeah, anything else to say about Godard or art cinema or foreign films of the 1960s or the French New Wave or any of that stuff, Ben? Nah. 
It's all meaningless. And it really is. It's all... I hope this podcast is edited together so that this part is at the beginning and the end is in the, the beginning's in the middle and yeah. and the podcast ends with us just being in the middle of a sentence that's not that's like the least interesting part of what we were saying anyway. Yeah, like that would show them. That would show them if the podcast just cut off in the 